Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the MAM Club. Today, we're going to be discussing mindfulness. It's an episode that we've been wanting to do for quite a while. Given the current circumstances, I think it's even more important that we do it now. Before we get into speaking with our guest, we wanted to give you a quick overview of what it is that we're going to be talking about. So we're going to be talking about mindfulness specifically. And if we look at Wikipedia, mindfulness is the psychological process of purposely bringing one's attention to experiences occurring in the present moment without judgment. Uh, And that is achieved through the practice of meditation or other types of training. So that's ultimately, it's that simple. That's what mindfulness is. Uh, It's been used um, in psychological and psychiatric settings for for many decades. Uh, And there are clinical studies that document physical and mental health benefits. There's actually a great show on Netflix called The Mind Explained that has an episode on mindfulness that does a really good job of um, presenting a lot of this clinical evidence. Um, so that's that's really mindfulness. Now, one of the things we talked about is that it's typically achieved through the practice of meditation. Gareth, how would you differentiate between mindfulness and meditation? So meditation is a very specific uh, type of discipline. Um, so if you think of martial arts, right, uh, there's different styles of martial arts, but uh, fundamentally all the martial arts have the one thing in common, which is they are an art form for combat that involves a certain degree of training, a certain degree of discipline to get to higher levels of practice inside of the martial art. Uh, meditation isn't really any different from those. Um, there are different disciplines. So, for example, one of the techniques that uh, that I'm familiar with is Vipassana meditation, and it's a little bit different from uh, some of the other meditative techniques that you see in maybe in Tibetan Buddhism or um, or, I mean, looking at some of the meditation apps that are out there right now that people are, are familiar with. Um, now, it differs a, from mindfulness in that mindfulness is kind of a broader category of activities. You know, there's lots of different ways to be mindful that don't require you sitting in silence and focusing your attention. Uh, you can be mindful just in the way that you engage in a certain uh, in a certain practice like you know artists for example uh, when they're engaged with a painting uh, are certainly mindful in those moments when they're for example painting a landscape a landscape painting or painting a portrait or something along those lines so mindfulness in its bare sense uh, I mean according to me anyways is just the the state of being aware or present in the moment uh, so it's a heightened state of, of concentration or awareness where you're attending more carefully to you know the sensory inputs uh, coming to you from from your environment uh, but doesn't require you to necessarily to, to focus your attention in a, in a particular way whereas meditation on the other hand really is a is a practice of sitting there and learning to focus your mind uh, using a very specific uh, a specific technique of some sort like following your breath or or, or, or observing sensations in your body uh, and you know usually there's uh, with different kinds of practices, there's other sets of commitments and other parts of the practice as well that are part of the discipline. Okay, that that, make, that makes sense. And then that meditation type training can be applied to achieve mindfulness. It's just what you're meditating on is the mindfulness component. 
Yeah, exactly. Meditation is just one way of learning uh, in a disciplined way to be mindful. Um, so meditation is a is a type of mindfulness activity. It's a mindfulness activity. It's a it's a practice that you learn in order to become more mindful. And one of the consequences, incidentally, of meditation when you uh, when you become more practiced in a particular discipline is that you can bring the the awareness or the mindfulness that you get from the practice into the rest of your life. And so you'll hear you know meditators, lifelong meditators, talking about how their experience uh, of just their normal daily life is a heightened experience, one in which they're they're more present, more connected to what's going on in their environment and what's going on in their surroundings, um, because they're more capable of paying attention to all the detail. They aren't distracted thinking about the future or thinking about other things or all the other distractions that we happen to have in our lives. Sorry, what did you say? I was making a note. Sorry, Mark. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> what, what really blew me away uh, about this whole mindfulness thing is that once once trained, the brain actually behaves differently in the face of stress. Um, some of these studies uh, that uh, that have come up show that um, meditation or mindfulness, I'm sorry, can have effects approaching uh, medication in treating anxiety. And of course, of course, even better if you combine uh, mindfulness and and medication in in treating anxiety. So this is this is real stuff. This has real impacts, physiological impacts. Oh yeah, without a doubt. Uh, I mean, it's been known to lower resting heart rate, to reduce cortisol levels in the body. Uh, I remember one really interesting study. Uh, I taught a course on altered states of consciousness a bunch of years back. And, and one of the readings I gave to the students was a, a reading that summarized this really interesting clinical finding in which they did a randomized control clinical trial. Uh, and the, you know, the experimental arm of the study was involved people learning a particular meditation technique uh, and then a control group. And what they did is they gave the, they gave the participants in both groups a vaccine uh, of sorts to try to stimulate antibodies uh, in the immune system. And what they found at the end of eight weeks after they took blood samples was that the meditators uh, had a, a, a much higher number of antibodies suggesting that there's proactive effects on the immune system of, uh, of mindfulness or of meditation specifically. You know, and there's been tons of studies on this subject. Uh, I was just looking at a, a 2016 um, uh systematic review of uh of mindfulness studies and uh and the immune system and uh, i mean people have studied everything from how it uh affects inflammatory proteins um how it affects cellular functions like cellular transcription uh immune cell counts the way that immune cells age uh i mean there's just there's just oodles and oodles and oodles of scientific research being done right now just to understand the impacts of of, of meditation on the body I mean, and things as subtle as how, uh, how how genes are working inside of cells. Yeah, uh, un- unbelievable. And so we'll, we'll post a, a reference to that as we go. Um, so this is going to be a, a bit of a, a longer episode. We're uh, very lucky to have uh, Angela Scott with us. Um, she is the owner of uh, Forest City Mindfulness in London, Ontario, Canada. And her studio specializes in evidence-based mindfulness programs. Um, so those are the ones that we referenced earlier that help individuals uh, manage stress, regulate emotion, um, and cultivate these adaptive patterns of self-care that we talked about. Um, she has a master's in education. And prior to doing all this, she spent more than 20 years uh, in the uh, corporate training and post-secondary um, arenas. So she has uh, a lot of experience 
um, uh, working with individuals, training, um, and uh, now taking all of that and bringing it into the meditation mindfulness space. I'm very excited to have you here with us today. Angela, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to join us today. It's lovely to have you here. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Um, I know where we have a history that goes uh, way back. Um, so I, we know each other really well and I'm really excited to, uh, for you to be here. Um, tell me a little bit about, you know, sort of more of your recent past and how you came to be running a, uh, a mindfulness center. Well, um, it was a long time in the coming. Um, for about 11, almost 12 years, I'd been working in private practice as a counselor and a, and a coach, as you know. and um, and throughout that time, uh, you know, my own life was unfolding and uh, regular life stressors were hitting me. But I went through a period of my life, a period of about five to seven years where I just felt like life was throwing the book at me. And um, a lot of life sort of tragedies and crises were all flying at me in a very compressed format. Now, none of these were um, things that don't happen to all of us throughout the course of our life. Um you know, death and loss and sickness and, uh, and uh, problems with loved ones. But it just kept coming at me and coming at me. And my way of coping is to lean in. I've always been a person who didn't run away from problems. I leaned in and I dealt with it because I understood that, you know, stifling uh, or avoiding or turning away from problems was just going to make them worse. So here I was leaning in, leaning in, but it was like I wasn't getting time to process um, what was happening before the next big crises happen. So over a course of a few years, I really felt myself going down by the nose and, uh, nobody seemed to know. So I've been told at the time I looked like I had it all together, but I knew that I, I was going down. My capacity was, was, was draining. And, um, during that time, uh, a lot of people had said to me, you know, you should really learn to meditate. You know, they'd be right up your alley. And I'd say, yeah, I should. I, I think that's a great idea. And I did think it was a great idea, but I never did it. And looking back, I think it was because I thought I was smarter than meditation. I think that I felt that my toolbox was large and I used uh, all the tools that I shared with others in my practice. Um, and that that was enough. And, and, you know, what good would sitting doing nothing do me? Well, even if, even if meditation were doing nothing, and it's not, um, wasn't that maybe what I needed during this period where I just, you know, my batteries were completely drained and, and I had very little left. Um, but anyway, it took me getting to a point where I just thought, I'm in big trouble here. And a friend of mine had recommended a retreat just outside of Toronto, a retreat center, a 10-day silent retreat. And never having meditated ever in my life, I signed up and I went to this. And um, I won't go into what so that happened. So like zero, zero to 60, right? It was zero to 60, yeah. It was, it was an extraordinary experience. It was one of the most difficult things that I had ever done. Um, but it changed me. And I'm not going to say it saved my life, but it dramatically altered the course of my life and the relationship that I was able to cultivate with uh, stress and how I manage stress in my life. So I was very grateful for this, but I didn't become an evangelist of meditation. It was something that was personal and I kept it to myself and my business um, 
activities continued on such as they were. And um, that was about nine years ago. And it wasn't until about three years ago that I'd been feeling like I needed a bit of a change uh, in my career. I'd been working one-on-one for a very, very long time. And I previously had had a, a great deal of experience in public speaking and corporate training and, um, and development. And I was sort of feeling that, that itch, like I might be willing to get back out there and work with groups again. And literally I had this epiphany at three in the morning. I sat bolt upright in my bed and, um, the thought was you should just transition your professional activities to teaching mindfulness. And this came from so many people asking me like, you know, I, I want to be peaceful. I want to be peaceful. And I was using all the tools in my box to, to help them. And they were being helped. Uh, psychological tools are, are extraordinarily helpful. But it, it was just in some cases, it was just falling short of the mark. And for me, I had, I had uh, uh, gotten so much out of meditation. So I thought, I'm going to share this. And uh, it, it's grown into something that I didn't quite expect at that three in the morning incident. But now um, I own and operate a mindfulness studio in London, Ontario called Forest City Mindfulness. And this is a center geared towards offering all evidence-based mindfulness programs, um, many of them stemming from the uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction program. Uh, created by John Kabat-Zinn at the University of Massachusetts Medical School almost uh, over 40 years ago now. So it's been a joy. Uh, I've been running uh, at the speed of light, being the uh, the chief cook and bottle washer, as they say. <laughs> but um, but the center is being really well received. So that was a great introduction. Um, I think it would be really awesome if you could explain a little bit uh, about mindfulness for for the audience. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that the the meditation retreat was at uh, Dhamma Tarana, just outside of Toronto, the Vipassana Center. It is, yes, it is. Yeah, excellent. So, so why don't you talk a little bit about uh, about what the practice of mindfulness is, and maybe a little bit about about Vipassana, just to give people a, a short orientation. Well, Vipassana is jumping in with both feet. Uh, Let me be clear on that. Um, It's not usually a place where one would go if they wanted to learn mindful meditation. Now, I I say that respectfully. It's it's a tall order. And, um, and, and, you know, it, it changed my life, but it's, it's quite a, it's, it's quite a demanding uh, 10 days. So you're basically learning how to meditate in a particular tradition um, which is secular, but coming from an, an Eastern, um, sort of in, in an Eastern package. And um, you meditate about 10 and a half hours a day. And um, you have great meals and you immerse yourself. You sort of renounce everything so that you can just be alone with your thoughts. And it's amazing what comes up in that silence when you have no distractions. But the experience is very different for everybody. Um, it um, they, they almost have this idea where what happens at Vipassana stays with Vipassana. And, and that's only <laughs> for, for the reason that you don't want to taint someone else's experience with expectation. Because as I said, everyone's experience is quite different. And if you go in looking to achieve a certain state or whip a problem, you know, pull it out by the roots, like I'm going to go in there and, you know, nail my anxiety. I'm going to come out a new person. Well, you're probably going to be disappointed. You know, that's sort of counter to what you're learning to do, which is just to be 
rather than to do anything. And so it's a great, if you're willing to immerse yourself in it, you're going to emerge quite different. So that's a that's learning the Vipassana tradition. But what is interesting is a lot of the evidence-based stuff that, um, that we're hearing about in these uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction courses that are so effective. Um, they actually do uh, stem from the Vipassana tradition. And the reason for that is that the founder of the program, the man who developed it, John Kabat-Zinn, was a Vipassana meditator himself uh, at the time. And when he decided to bring meditation to folks who were suffering with some terrific uh, physical conditions, um, in a hospital, he said, let me have a crack at it and see if I can can help ease their suffering through meditation. And he did, and this program was born. So the mindfulness-based stress reduction program is inspired by Vipassana principles, but it's been streamlined. Um, all of the Eastern uh, sort of uh, elements of it have been not stripped. Um, the spirit is certainly there, but it's it's been tailored to a, a very secular audience. It's a package that's very attractive for literally anybody to be able to learn and understand and benefit from. And, and when you say evidence-based, to me, that's, that, that sounds some, something scientific, I guess, almost peer-reviewed. I'm not sure how to how to interpret yeah. evidence-based. Well, so when we say evidence-based, we mean that it's it's stemming from a tradition that's had a lot of uh, rigorous study. Um, it's it's okay. it's it's been studied clinically, academically, and in in the case of MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, it being sort of the first big evidence-based course uh, to 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 be introduced into the Western world. Um, it um, was born in a hospital, so it was uniquely predisposed to being studied right from the very beginning, which has had terrific benefit um, for the course's credibility and uh, its ability to sort of open doors and get people to say, okay, well, you know, if this has uh, been created in a clinical setting, it isn't clinical. So it's, it's therapeutic without being therapy. And we make that mm -hmm. distinction very clear, but it, you know, it's, it's been developed in, in, in a setting with scientific principles. It's been studied. It, the results are repeatable. You can rely on them. And there's quite a rigorous training process that goes uh, with learning to become a, uh, a meditation teacher um, through that tradition, which is what I've done. So, so that makes sense. Thank you. I, I think I understand the, the evidence-based approach you, you speak about. And I'm assuming that the, the MBSR, as you called it, is the methodology that you're currently implementing in, in your um, facility? Yeah. Well, it's um, so I, I, I offer MBSR at my center and a lot of the eight week um, programs that are out there that are evidence based are kind of derivative courses. They're inspired by that or, or direct, you know, offshoots of that. Um, now there's mindfulness based compassion. There's mindfulness based uh, cognitive therapy. Um, there's a mindfulness based eating awareness training. And these are all lengthy evidence based courses. And that's what my center is dedicated to offering. Right. And, and the evidence on the other side is, I guess, obviously there's the efficacy of it, right? You know, that you are finding peace and comfort and so on. But um, yeah. the, the stuff that, that I've seen around meditation in general, not in BSR specifically, and just want to confirm this with you, but I mean, I've, I've seen articles from a neurological standpoint that have done, you know, fMRIs that show that 
that physiologically the brain actually does relax. Like you can tell that the activity uh, reduces the and and I, I would imagine you know, cortisol levels drop and so on. Like this isn't, this isn't just deep breathing and feeling better about yourself. These are physiological impacts. Is that? Absolutely. I mean, there's all kinds of fascinating uh, findings. Um, One of them is that the amygdala shrinks. Now the role of the amygdala, it's kind of like the, the the fire alarm bell in your head. Um, When you appraise a situation to be um, dangerous, threatening, um, a series of processes occur in, in your brain and the amygdala gets uh, activated and it basically says, you know, release the hounds and the stress response, um, <laughs> the stress response uh, cycle kicks into gear and, and that's where a, a lot of chemicals flood your system, stress hormones like cortisol um, and they literally physiologically change your body in ways so that you can go to battle survive, get through whatever this threat is. So the amygdala over time with meditation is, um, is, has been found to shrink, to grow smaller. And that's a good thing because with persistent or chronic stress in a person's life, the amygdala, the amygdala can enlarge, kind of become red and inflamed. And what that makes, what, what it then does is it becomes trigger happy. So it gets so that the littlest thing just sets you off. So right. yes, we've seen a decrease in amygdala size. Um, the uh, as for reducing cortisol le- levels, the the biggest thing about practicing mindfulness, and it is a practice, it's a skill that you have to cultivate over time, is that we're not looking to eliminate the experience of stress from our lives. Um, we're looking to be able to manage it more effectively. So, so much of the stress response cycle is it's, it's hardwired. It's there to, to serve a very important purpose. It saves our life sometimes. So we don't want to override that, but we don't want it to trip so regularly. And when it does trip, we want to be able to regulate ourselves quicker. So to go from what we call a sympathetic nervous response, where we're very stressed and very elevated and try and get the body to dip down into a parasympathetic resting state and to do that sort of on demand. And that's what mindfulness training can, uh, can provide you over time. Very cool. Go ahead, Matt. No, I mean, this, this, this sounds amazing. I just, I mean, I want to ask sort of the obvious question is, you know, given, given everything that's going on around us today, I mean, this is all valuable stuff in general. Um, we're in a unique situation at the moment where this seems, you know, very applicable. Um, so, you know, with some of this in mind, how, how do we, how do we use this or other tools to support ourselves and, and, or families and others around us? Well, I, I think what's really interesting, I think the biggest thing that uh, we're all talking about right now, or that many of us have noticed though, in terms of, you know, how can we support ourselves? Um, I think that recognizing that it turns out we all need one another. Who knew? And I think until now, uh, many of us have been operating under a false sense of our own independence. You know, we went about our day, we, uh, we went to work, we chose our social activities, we consumed various media. And I think a lot of us felt really independent. Uh, and I don't think that we realized the full extent to which we relied on the connection of others. And so all of a sudden, wham! here's this isolation. And, you know, it was slow at first, but then it just increased day by day and then week by week. And I think it wasn't until we were experiencing some form of restriction from our normal social routines 
that we noticed the unpleasantness of being separated from each other. And it was a real visceral discomfort. And um, I mean, so one of the most simple things outside of mindfulness is um, I think one of the best ways to support ourselves, first of all, is to let your guard down, recognize and accept that we need each other. And an extension of this is remembering that other people need us too. And so reach out and, and, you know, don't be an island. And that's what I've been telling everybody who's coming to me through the center, uh, through the website. I'm telling everybody, freely communicate your need for connection and conversation and give other people the permission to do so the same. And um, that's honestly the best gift that we can give others right now is ourselves. And so outside of mindfulness. Yeah, it's funny. One of the really interesting things that I've heard people commenting on, and and I don't know how this how true this is in the course of normal people's lives, but you know, people make the joke that you know, as we've spent more time on our devices and we spend more time kind of sequestered in our homes, that the odd part of our new condition is that you know we're still doing much of the same things that we did before, but now there's been this psychological shift. I mean, there's a sense in which we are, you know, we're we're not choosing to stay home anymore. We're 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 forced to be at home and somehow that seems to make a difference. Um, I mean, certainly we're physically isolated just as you described. We can't literally go over to our neighbor's place. I mean, we can, but we shouldn't. Um, But now, you know, we're stuck at home and now trying to figure out a whole new way of being, I guess, is is one way of putting it, um, Mm -hmm. while still being in pretty much the same circumstances we chose, you know, maybe six weeks ago. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's interesting because what we're dealing with is an interruption of our conditioning. I mean, we had our routines and they literally got hit by a Mack truck. Right. Um, And that is physically uncomfortable. Many of us don't give any thought to this. Mindfulness is interesting because it, 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 it really helps you turn inward and notice how your thoughts are uh, affecting your emotions and the sensations in your body. And it sort of gives you a lens by which to observe and understand what's going on inside of you. And I think what a lot of people don't understand is this thrashing about this feeling of, of sort of being a caged lion. It is a physical phen- phenomenon. Like it, it, it's a real thing. And it's because we have been wired to operate a certain way day in, day out. And suddenly that just stopped. It literally just stopped. Like a, we were a hundred mile an hour train going down the track and then we just put the brakes on. And there is a very necessary period of adjustment so that we can recondition ourselves to this new normal. And I have noticed, um, even in the last week, people settling into some kind of new routine and that their anxiety levels have altered slightly as a result of that. So they're adapting. I mean, that's, we're incredibly adaptive as humans and we're already starting to adapt to this. Yeah. I think that's a perfect description. Um, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about, because I, I'm one of the converted, so I've, I've done three of the Vipassana 10-day retreats, and every one of them was completely different, just to validate your, your earlier points about that. Um, but for people who aren't familiar with mindfulness or meditation, you know, when you're talking about the circumstance that we're in right now, where everybody's isolated at home, certainly turning inward and focusing, on, p- focusing your attention on yourself and being mindful of what's going on inside of you, for many people would be the last thing they'd think about doing right now. And so I wonder if you can make the connection for folks out there around why, you know, what the benefits are and what you get from actually turning inward and being more present and, and, and being aware of what's going on inside of you. Well, 
first of all, I, I'm trying to think about how best to answer that. I think you can you can say, hey, you need to turn inward and uh, and make sense of this and and notice how you feel about this. And and you're right, that means very little to someone who has no experience with meditation. Meditation uh, or mindfulness, uh, mindful meditation specifically, um, requires a, a degree of instruction. Mm-hmm. So there is literally a technique, and you must be taught it, and hopefully taught it um, properly, and um, and it's something that needs to be nurtured. We say that uh, mindful meditation and the benefits specifically, because the benefits everybody's touting all the benefits you can get from from mindfulness, and and they are true for the large part. But what people don't take into consideration is that mindfulness is dose dependent. Right. So, That's a good point. so what it's saying is, you know, use it a little bit and you will get a little bit of benefit. Use it a lot and you're going to see some extraordinary uh, changes uh, in the way you interact with your life and with stressors. So it's, it's dose dependent. And the thing is, I talk to a lot of people who, who I say, you know, who come to my classes and I'll say, you know, do you have any experience with meditation or with mindfulness. And a lot of people say yes. And then when I say, so, so what kind of experience to have? A lot of people will say, well, I downloaded an app and I tried to use it. And, um, and I say, well, how did that go? And they're like, well, not very good. And, and that's not surprising. You can't just jump in without some kind of basic instruction and beyond just being instructed because the, the technique is very, very simple, deceptively simple. Um, I think intelligent people need to know why they're doing it mm-hmm. because it really feels like you're not doing a whole lot initially. And it is, it can be very tedious and it can be boring and your mind does not want to be uh, forced into this small place where it's being asked to focus on, on only one thing for this planned period of time. It doesn't like it. The mind wants to do what it always does. It wants to wander free. And, um, and so it's difficult. And I think you need to explain why a person is, is engaging in this practice, that it gets a little easier over time. And that I guess to put it simply, the reason that we practice mindfulness in a formal manner. So a planned period of time using a specific technique and you do it regularly, very regularly, whether it's three times a week or daily is, is ideal. And it can be 10 or 15 minutes a day. It doesn't have to be an hour long Vipassana practice. But the reason why we're doing it is we're cultivating an ability to focus our attention in the present moment. Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of reasons why we want to do that. But over time, you are literally re- conditioning your mind to be able to be more present because most of the time it's wandering all over the place and, uh, and it is everywhere but present. And so there's real benefits to learning how to condition the mind to be in the present moment. And that takes a lot of practice. The benefits put simply, one, you can appreciate your life more because there's so many things we miss when we're on auto, autopilot. You know, our brain can be in a completely different place while we're reading our child a story at night. And, um, and so we're missing that. We're missing the little giggles and the warm body next to us and just the delight of being with this child um, because we're thinking about what we're going to do after the kid's been put to bed. And, um, and so we miss the, the joys of, of our life. 
uh, often when we're living on autopilot. So cultivating a present moment awareness over time with a formal practice will help you be more grounded in the present. So one benefit is appreciating more of your life. The other benefit is stress reduction. And, um, and this is achieved by sometimes when we're in the present moment, the present moment isn't pleasant. Sometimes it can be downright difficult when, when there's an actual crisis unfolding in front of you. It can be difficult. But the benefit of being able to lean in allows you to form more fully process the emotional experience of what's happening. And uh, instead of throwing it in what I call a steamer trunk and then dragging that trunk around with you for the rest of your life, which gets very heavy if that's your customary uh, mode of, of, of dealing with stress or dealing with problems in your life. So being able to lean in and fully process experiences in real time and also being able to just be with what is, um, sort of learn how to be equanimous, not attach yourself so much to things that you're always striving for and that you want. And with mindful practice, one of the things that you come to experience is you get very in tune with how thoughts and appraisals of things in life create sensations in the body that we either deem pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And um, so, for instance, truly desiring something, um, it causes suffering in this tradition. We talk about, well, what is suffering? Well, one definition of suffering is wanting things to be different than they are or wanting some aspect of ourselves to be different than it is. And that mere striving constantly for something that's just beyond your reach creates a very unpleasant set of physical sensations and mindfulness allows you to sort of discover that this is all going on underneath your surface. Uh, what I say in my classes is we're learning how to become scientists in the lab of our life. Right. We get to take a two, two foot back step and just observe that these processes are kind of predictable. You know, I think a certain thing, I feel a certain way and I get a stab of pain in my solar plexus or I get a migraine and you start to notice these, um, these patterns and, Mindfulness also says, you know, that we bring some kindness and compassion um, to this exploration process. And it's, it's interesting how you can sort of look at your little self. I, I sort of have big Ange and little Ange. And, and big Ange is the observer who can stand back and sort of notice what's going on and, and see how little Ange's body is, is reacting in very predictable ways. And it sort of puts a pin in a lot of situations. You can, you can laugh at certain things like, oh, little Ange, look at how upset you're getting. We're not going to get on that thought train, though, and just nuke this whole situation. We're just going to take a step back and do some breathing. And it really makes a difference. <laughs> so there's, wow, there's, there's so much stuff there. I want to make sure I'm understanding this the, the, the right way. So the, the, the first thing that, that, that caught my attention is when you were talking about in the, in sort of in the context of stress reduction to lean into something unpleasant. And so, um, I, I sort of take that as, you know, m many of us, when you, we, we feel ourselves or our mind going to an unhappy place, we just kind of stop that thought, put it aside, think about something else. Cause we don't want to think about the unpleasant, the leaning in, um, approach would be to say, look, this doesn't feel good, but instead of ignoring it, put in the steamer trunk, as you said, I'm going to actively say, all right, it's not happy. Why is it not happy? And you, and you start thinking about it. Is that, am I interpreting that correctly? 
Well, I wouldn't say thinking. Um, thinking and analysis are, are doing activities. What we're more uh, uh, suggesting here is that you learn to experience and observe your experience. So there's a part of the mind that has an ability to watch itself. And, and that's really interesting. Um, we can stand back and watch our thoughts. And, um, and we can also stand back and notice certain feelings that are being experienced uh, at, at any given point in time. And that's information, right? So um, being able to lean in says, wow, I'm feeling some really big emotions right now. I'm feeling hurt. I'm feeling afraid or embarrassed or whatever it happens to be. And to be able to sit with it and to breathe through it. And we call this sort of the moment of a mindful pause. This is where instead of just blindly reacting, um, being a slave to our conditioning, we are going to be able to just stop, take a few breaths and truly appraise the situation, not in a knee-jerk way, but we're going to observe. We're going to watch what's going on with us, and we're going to see if we can just back ourselves off from whatever normal response or reaction um, we would normally be giving. I mean, one of the exercises I do with lots of folks is I get them to notice what their signature sort of conflict thought train is. And in mindfulness, we do exercises where we can learn to just sit back and watch thoughts arising, lingering, and passing. And they're kind of just a phenomenon. Like they just, mm -hmm. they, they arise almost automatically and we could get into, well, you know, where do thoughts come from and everything, but that's like another physical or philosophical conversation for another time. But thoughts just kind of arise sort of involuntarily, oftentimes, they dance about for a bit, and then they fade, dissolve, or go away eventually. All thoughts do. And being able to, instead of just react or get caught up in the stickiness of thoughts, to be able to stand back and say, I'm going to watch these and see what happens next, really is quite an experience. And I'm not going to say what happens next because I don't want to lead you to that. I want you to try that yourself and the folks that are listening. But one of the things you might discover is, wow, it didn't kill me. To sit back and not react and to watch <laughs> the nature of where my thoughts went throughout this conflict that was upsetting to me and then to watch them dissolve ultimately. And I didn't make the situation worse. You know, it, 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 it all faded and I didn't react. I didn't hit the nuke button here. Um, it's fascinating. And there's real power in that. You know? Especially now. To I mean, realize that. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, go yeah. ahead. I was just thinking, I mean, right now, um, you know, we're four weeks into being quarantined, stuck with uh, our partners. I shouldn't say stuck with, I mean, with the opportunity to spend <laughs> lots of wonderful time with our families and our children. Um, but four weeks in, you know, you know, as you're readjusting to each other's routines and you're dealing with the little stressors in life, what's really interesting, I think, about what you're saying is it's possible for anybody out there listening, it's possible to be in those moments and not react. I mean, you know, there's a lot of feedback loops that happen in a, in a household and in a home where, you know, the, the emotional atmosphere will be set by the person who's reacting the most in a given situation. And I, I think it's really informative to let people know that you don't have to keep continuing in some of those patterns that, that without even practicing mindfulness, you know, you could ask, you, you know, just, just rehearse in your mind and say, Hey, you know, uh, although it will take a lot of discipline, you know, 
what would happen if in this particular situation, which is, you know, the fourth time this week that I've had to have the same conversation with my daughter about the exact same issue, what happens if I don't react? What happens if I just see what happens? Yeah, be the scientist. See what happens next. I think mindfulness gives the extra added benefit of, um, with the breathing component, though, of actually bringing the body into a resting state. And I think that's a key component here. If we just leave this as a cerebral activity, we're really missing out on all of the additional benefits. Because this isn't about just getting to the root of figuring stuff out or finding right. an interesting pattern and unlocking a key to your mind. It's it's quite different from that. You know what's it, what's interesting about it? I I, I want to because I, I do want to pick up on the thread. The difference between you know whether or not this is a cerebral activity or whether or not this is something that that's more visceral. Uh, yeah, is really important yeah. to point out because there, there's some interesting parallels between mindfulness and cognitive behavioral therapy. And so if you look at thought tracking, for example, in cognitive behavioral therapy, it's very similar to mindfulness in in terms of its its demand on that metacognitive function, the thinking about thinking piece, but it's purely yes. cognitive in that sense, right? So you're not getting into some of the other parts of the practice, which are the the physical or vis- visceral components and the affective components about being in the moment as well. So so why don't you pick up on that thread and, and just explain what the difference is and why it matters? Yeah. So I mean, the, the thing is, is a, a lot of a big reason why mindfulness doesn't work and why people lose interest. Um, I think they lose interest because they give it a try. They don't see any results and they abandon it. But what I see with a lot of people is that they are quite fascinated uh, by the, the mechanics of mindfulness, by the theories of mindfulness, and certainly by the crush of fascinating neurological findings about the benefits of mindfulness. And what I say in my classes as well is, Reading about all of this stuff, as fascinating as it is, as intellectually stimulating as it is, is not going to do one iota of good for your stress <laughs> reduction. Right. It's just not. And I think, um, yeah, it's just not. At some point, and, and we go back to, it's dose dependent. You right. just have to do it. Yeah. And. I think that the other beautiful thing and what really attracted me about all of this is you don't have to believe in any of this. You don't have to believe in any of these theories. You just have to learn it properly and you make up your own mind because the proof is literally in the pudding. You are either going to notice a positive difference in your life over time or you're not. And and it isn't for everyone. It, it isn't. But um, it's it's something that you get an opportunity to evaluate for yourself directly. It's about direct experience. And there's a reason why the most of the evidence-based programs are as lengthy as they are. Um, the story goes that the MBSR program, it was, uh, it was, they tried a number of different time formats um, when they were building that program out, and they ultimately settled on eight weeks because they decided that that was the bare minimum amount of time that one could learn. Uh, a mindfulness meditation and build a practice that would have a foundation that would be strong enough to survive beyond the course. Oh, wow. And so a scaffolding of principles, a scaffolding of your own ability that you cultivate week after week in the class and outside of the class. And, and so that's, that's what I try and really educate people on is you can't be so hard on yourself as to expect that you can download an app or take one mindfulness class and go into your life and just become great at it. I mean, it's, it's not easy and it's a discipline. 
And it's much easier to cultivate and, and strengthen a discipline when you're in a supportive group of people and you have the accountability to develop those skills over uh, a decent period of time. Mm-hmm. The, the one question I have, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit more practical and, I, and I, I maybe even simplistic. So I understand the, the, the practice of mindfulness. It's, a, it's, a, it's an activity. It takes time. Uh, you know, you need a place to be uh, ideally alone to do these sorts of things. When you were referring to, uh, things like, you know, the little land, you know, observing your own thoughts, those are not necessarily things that happened while you're, um, while you have that time for yourself, um, meditating. These, these presumably would things would be things that you could do throughout a regular day. That's very perceptive of you. Um, what what I'm referring to in that particular instance is the practice of informal mindfulness. And so formal mindfulness is setting aside a certain length of time daily um, engaging in a specific practice with a certain technique. And, and we do that so that we can cultivate greater present moment awareness in our regular life. And so informal practice are all the wonderful things that we get to experience when we are just more present in our life. So whether that's cooking a meal or reading a storybook to our children, um, we are fully present and grounded in the present moment experience when we're doing that. And so, yes, it also spills into an ability to check in with yourself and to regularly. So regularly throughout the day, I'm constantly checking in and noticing, you know, usually, usually if I, if I'm starting not to feel good, um, I'll, I'll say, okay, well, what's going on here? And I'll, I'll check in and I'll say, well, what kind of, where have my thoughts been for the last while? Okay. Well, I've been thinking about this one thing. Okay. Well, is that thing right here right now? No, it was something that happened two days ago. Okay. So you weren't present. You were in the past. How long were you in the past? Oh man, I guess I've been thinking about that on and off for the last 45 minutes. Okay. All right. And what feels unpleasant? Well, I'm feeling kind of a mild sense of dread. Oh, okay. (laughs) And where does that dread live in your body? Um, it's starting to creep out of my stomach and and into my solar plexus. So it's a check-in that becomes more automatic though, because you've put in the time doing the formal practice, if that makes sense. Right. It's like, exactly. It's like a, it's a diagnostic. So it's, it's the thing that, and, and I don't want to, I don't know this topic. Um, but I mean, if, you know, going back to some of the uh, famous psychologists, they would talk about the, you know, the non-conscious, um, states, the things that we have going on in our head that we're not entirely conscious of. And to me, the way you're describing it is an attempt to do a diagnostic on yourself where you begin to at least attempt to uncover some of those. You probably won't get to all of them, but at least some of them, right? Where I'm not feeling comfortable and you dig a little bit and you're like, oh, that's because I've been thinking about this thing. Is that? Yeah. Well, it is. But I mean, like, we're not even talking about stuff that's unconscious. We're just talking about stuff that we don't notice because we're not paying Mm -hmm. attention. So we're not talking about like the, the, the deep unconscious. Um, we're talking about, wow, my, my back has been killing me and, um, and I'm not paying any attention to that. And I'm not noticing that it's because I've sat at my kitchen table working for the last nine hours, not moving and, and not noticing or evaluating the fact that that's, that's shouldn't be okay with me. Like it's about checking in with yourself compassionately and noticing everything, noticing all aspects of your experience. Right. And, and that sore back 
uh, has caused me to lash out at someone. Um, yeah. you know, with some sort of misplaced anger, not, not at them, but because my back hurt. That's right. Yeah. You start to notice the interconnection of your thoughts, your emotions, and the physical sensations in the body. And the, the number one thing though about mindfulness is for stress reduction in particular is we we're always trying to get a person out of their heads to get them out of the thinking and doing mode and dropping them into the body. Because when we rest upon some sensation that is existing in the body, we are suddenly in the present moment. So when you drop into the body during a practice and you're being guided to rest your attention on, say, your heartbeat. Okay, well, rest in the heartbeat. Where do you notice the heartbeat? Where is it most prevalent? Where is that, that beating most vivid in what part of your chest? You explore this with some curiosity. Uh, maybe it actually is more prevalent at the base of your neck as a pulse. So you're resting on something in the body that guarantees that you are in the present moment. And so you're, you're sort of, it's, it's like the only acceptable form of distraction. <laughs> I mean, in a sense, you're going to get out of your head and, and interrupt the thought process, which is going nowhere good. And you're going to ground yourself using the body in the present moment. And, um, and you're going to stay there for a while and you're going to breathe and uh, this is why we use the breath as an anchor, because it's always with us, no matter where we are from our first day to our last, there it is. And we can count on that. We don't need to think about breathing. It's involuntary. Okay. It's, yep. um, it's autonomic. So there it is. And we can rest in that. And the, the practice is merely finding the focal point. And when the mind wanders, and it will, it is supposed to, and the goal is never to try and stop it from thinking. The practice is merely catching it when the mind has wandered and bringing it back to the object of focus, which might be the breath, it could be the heartbeat, whatever it is that you're resting upon within the body at that time. And you do right. that and a million times. And the breath is an interesting yeah. one. I think this is the article you had sent me, Gareth, about what the uh, Navy SEALs do. Right, right. exactly. When, when they're in a moment of stress. And really, if you break it down, all they do is they focus on the breath. I mean, it's described a little bit differently. and uh, But ultimately, that's that's what they do to calm themselves. I was going to say it's a little bit different with the, like, so it is the same practice because uh, there's also some really good advice on how to avoid um, dying if you've fallen into frozen water. And it's, uh, I can't remember what the name of the method is, but um, but essentially it's a, it's a similar breathing exercise, which is about calming coming you down. And so breathing alone, regulated breathing certainly helps. But I think with the mindfulness piece, there's an additional element there, which is the attentiveness to the breath, the sensation of the breath as you're doing it, which is just another kind of further dimension that that adds to certainly the calming from the regulated breathing. But in the, in the, in Angela, jump in whenever you want, but in, but in the Vipassana tradition, it's your natural breath. You're not regulating your breathing in any way like you would with other kind of forced breathing techniques. Um, it is a breathing technique, but what's really interesting about it is it's a breathing technique in which all that you're doing is focusing your attention on your breath and paying attention to the sensation of your breath coming in out of your body. And it has the same effect, but, but there's this mindfulness piece to it that's really important. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, I mean, with with all of the mindfulness uh, practices that um, that that I'm teaching and 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 sharing with others, we don't manipulate the breath in any way. 
Right. We breathe naturally. I mean, occasionally we'll say, try and sip a nice deep breath if you can. Not everybody can based on certain physical conditions, but we try and take a, a slow, deliberate or deep breath, but that's about as far as it goes. I mean, we don't want to alter it. We're not trying to deliberately facilitate an altered state of consciousness in this particular tradition. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, though, though those are out there for sure. Um, but yeah, you don't, it's just regular breathing. Okay. And, and I, I want to not hear, but, but I'll come back to uh, that, that uh, freezing water reference you made, Gareth, because mm. that is a amazing example of a physiological effect of, uh, of meditation mm-hmm. um, that ultimately will save your life. So we'll, we'll, we'll do that off uh, um, at, at some later point in this chat. Um, so I wanted to take all of this that, that we've been, we've been talking about and, and, um, look at sort of the current current day applicability of, of this sort of thing. So at the moment, we're dealing with a lot of unknowns. Um, you, we're not sure what's going what's gonna to happen next. Um, how do we apply this sort of practice to, to an unknown? Well, I think the cool thing is mindfulness meditation is absolutely geared to be able to help us deal with this. Um, so left to our own devices... All right. The mind likes to hang out in three different places. It likes to hang out in the past, the future, and this pseudo reality we call daydreaming. Okay. It loves to hang out in in all of these other places, but the present. And so none of these different mind states are grounded in the present moment at all, no matter how much you try and convince yourself. (laughs) What we're seeing right now for sure is a predominant mindset that is future oriented. Okay, so many people are projecting into the future, trying to make sense of what's happening. And they're trying to plan, they're trying to problem solve, they're trying to strategize so they can minimize the damage to their careers, to their finances, to their health, everything. And, um, and, And the thing is, is that all of these different activities are absolutely critical and necessary. All right, we need to solve problems. We need to plan. The problem is, This all goes awry when we linger in this state for too long, okay? It goes bad for us. Um, When we are in a constant future-oriented state mentally, Mm -hmm. um, it will eventually induce anxiety. And there's a simple reason for that. And one one of them happens to be because all the variables required to fully solve any predicament, particularly a complex one like what we're facing right now, those variables just don't appear all at once. They unfold over time and they're part of an evolving process. And in the meantime, though, we remain, you know, fervently latched on, determined to get the situation fully wrapped up and under control and get a watertight plan. And the truth is life just doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. So now you might say, you know, sometimes that there's like, you know, brainstorming sessions, really intense insights can like burst forth out of this by, you know, locking yourself into a room and, uh, and, and putting your mind on something and having a strat session. The <laughs> truth is that's great, but we cannot live there all the time. It is not a healthy mindset to inhabit all the time or even half of the time. What's, what's super interesting about this is certainly you know, right now, I think people need to hear about this more than ever, but we had a conversation, uh, a couple of episodes ago about purpose anxiety. Um, and, 
it just struck me how relevant mindfulness is to just general anxiety in, in life. I mean, right now, certainly we're all feeling anxiety about this particular situation. You know, how long is this going to last? How long are we going to be socially, socially isolated? What's the world going to be like when we come out the other side of this? I mean, there's, there's, you know, numerous questions that we have. Um, but I, but I just want to point out, I guess, the, the general applicability to life. And we, we, we were exploring this concept called purpose anxiety. Um, you know, so there's, you know, the, the broad theme of, of these conversations before, before we hit the COVID-19 thing, uh, you know, was, was midlife for, for, for men and, and trying to understand kind of where we're at, uh, for our, you know, I guess our demographic, if you want to think of it that way and trying to understand where we're going with our lives. And, you know, this is, this is an interesting period, even at the best of times, um, as we start to take you know, stock of kind of where we've been. So, you know, our minds kind of hanging out in the past a little bit uh, and then dabbling in the future and, and, and understanding that, you know, our, our lives are finite and, and we've got limited time, you know, can fill people with a sense of anxiety, but what they should be doing or what they ought, ought to be doing. And I think, you know, there's a really valuable lesson here about being in the present and kind of accepting, accepting the moment as it is. Uh, I, wonder if, I wonder if you have some thoughts on that. Well, you know, it immediately makes me, uh, that makes me think of, you know, the definition of suffering that I shared earlier, which is wanting to be different than you are. And that sort of element of striving, that reflecting and, and appraising of your life and yourself and saying, wow, I haven't done enough or I'm not good enough if I don't do X. And I think that a lot of that, uh, besides not being self-compassionate, is is causing sort of this sense of of projecting into the future and, and just, you know, spinning a little bit thinking, well, I've got to do something. Well, I think at any given point, the best thing to ask yourself is where are my thoughts right now? If I'm feeling anxiety, where have my thoughts been for the last 20 minutes? Hmm. And I, I'm almost willing to put money on the fact they weren't present. They were either in one of those, those three orientations. They were either, you were projecting way too far into an unknown and distant future. And, um, uh, you know, and, and, or you were ruminating on something and going over and over something that's happened in the past, but the, the healthiest place to be is always going to be the present moment. Mm -hmm. It's always going to be the present moment. You can deal with almost anything. In fact, I'm going to say you can deal with anything. If you stay present with it, you'll just have more resources instead of future fretting or past regretting, we call it. So many people plan and then they worry and they fret and they tend to the plan and then the plan doesn't work out or it starts to deviate and it causes anxiety. And, um, and you're just, you're pre-living sort of um, an, an unfavorable outcome. And, and oftentimes the outcome occurs and it, and it isn't unfavorable at all. It's changed perhaps, but um, you know, but we've adapted over time. And um, so the, the healthiest place where you can keep your resources intact so your capacity your immune system intact everything is stay grounded in the present because mm -hmm. stress as you well know chronic stress is a killer it just zaps your immune system over time and i don't want to and i don't want to lose that that thought because i think that's extremely powerful it's the say the idea if i can you know rephrase what you said that you know we can deal with what we have ahead of us today but what we can't do is fret about the past, worry about the future and deal with today all at the same time. That's, we don't no. have the capacity to do all of those things at once. And that's going to create problems and anxiety and a whole, whole bunch of other things. So that idea Absolutely. of presence and, and, and this is, cause this is something that's, um, I mean, if, if we if sort of think about it practically, this is an easy one to, to adopt, um, 
in, in the sense of um, w- one thing at a time, right? You, you can't handle all of these things at the same time. No one can. Yeah. No, you can't. You can't. And the brain's interesting. It, it's, it's, it's kind of predictable in a lot of ways. Uh, and I mean, the brain can't actually tell the difference between something that's happening right now and something that's being imagined or remembered. So if you can conjure something up really intensely and generate some feelings, some emotions about it, and you start noticing that your thoughts have the power to create feelings in the body, your poor body can't tell the difference between something super stressful that, that you are remembering and whether it's happening right now. It just launches the same sequence to try and adapt and, and get through it. And so we are literally throwing upon ourselves stressful circumstances that the body is trying to do its best to um, adapt to, to get us through. And so many, so much of it is unnecessary because the, these things aren't actually happening. That, that's so, and if we so were true. instead, yeah. And if we were instead like be present so that we could be present for everything, the fact that, well, right now, actually nothing bad is happening. Um, like right this second, yes, there's a bigger sort of collective of, of, of things that are happening. But in my kitchen right now with food in my fridge and my family safe upstairs, you know, and, uh, and my CD collection in the next room, which brings me joy and the heat is turned on, you know, I mean, this moment, there's nothing wrong with this moment. You know, you could argue, well, you know, well, my bank account's draining the longer I'm not working and I could actually lose my business. No, that's not happening right now. And if you pre-live losing your business, if that's a concern, and I know it is for many Canadians right now and people around the world, you're going to drain your own capacity to deal with that if or when that actually happens. I I love that. I love that pre-live. That's so good. And, and the theory is that we couldn't, we, we will often pre-live multiple future scenarios when in reality we were only ever going to experience one and live that one but in anticipation of it we may pre-live five or six different scenarios so essentially we're taking ourselves through you know x times as much stress um, absolutely even before the event and you know happens and you talk about your diagnostic. I mean, when this all began, uh, things were changing so quickly. I mean, they still are, but in the early days, we just, what, what's happening? What, what I have to stay in? I can't run my classes. Okay. Well, for real? Well, I'm healthy though. I can't run my class. And it just, the situation devolved very, very quickly. And, um, and so I got to a point where I had was a locomotive barreling down the track at a hundred miles an hour and then wham. And, um, and so I was, you know, refunding all kinds of money for my courses and, um, and seeing the, the coffers drain. And then as the situation developed, you know, considering that, well, this might go on for months and how, how liquid am I? How long can I survive and keep my center alive? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if this doesn't turn around and the number I came up with was, you know, four months maximum. Well, there's a good chance this will still be going on then. So I went through my own little processing moment of a couple of days where I was feeling very stressed. I was, um, I was allowing myself to catastrophize. I was going to the worst case scenario. I was imagining, and you know, and we all have a signature thought train. My train is, man, I've worked so hard for so long. And I was you know, things were just exploding. Things are really going well. I'm breaking even now freshly with the business and, you know, figures this would happen. 
And all of our signature thought trains are different, but mine went there. It was like, you know, you can't get ahead. That little message is you're never going to get ahead. And I allowed that little phrase to that narrative to play out in my brain. But because I have a deep practice, I didn't allow myself to wallow in it for long. I expressed it. I gave myself some compassion. I recognized that I had a right to feel afraid and, um, and scared and, uh, and sad. But then it was time to just release that and move into an attitude of acceptance, recognizing that I have absolutely no control over what happens and remind myself of what I've already said in this, in this interview, which is we do not yet have all the variables in our receipt to know how this will turn out. And mm -hmm. around the next corner, what comes, but the government making announcements that there may be some kind of, of support coming, financial support. And within days of that, suddenly we've got all of these different benefits trying to cover as wide a range of, of our population as possible. And um, I'm pleased to say that I applied for some of this assistance and was uh, approved for it just yesterday afternoon. And wham, my small business is going to survive this because of that help. And I'm incredibly grateful. Now, I fortunately through my practice didn't suffer right up until, you know, yesterday when, when I was able to apply, I had dumped it earlier because again, you don't know what's going to happen. And the only thing that we know for sure is that life changes Right. every single second that we're breathing. We are different people from moment to moment. Our atmosphere around us is different. The scenarios in our lives um, are, are forever changing and nothing stays the same. And, and I say to people, you know, nothing good can last forever. But the good news is that nothing bad lasts forever either. It just doesn't. And you can put money on that. That's beautiful. I mean, <laughs> seriously. I yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, the, hearing that story right now, it, it couldn't have been more timely. I mean, not only the fact that your experience reflects the experience of a very large segment of society right now. Um, but the thing that I kept hoping you would do, and then you did it was to tell us, you know, how did that thought process evolve for you and how do you get to the other side of this and trust that being in the moment is going to get you to a better place because, you know, at the end, you know, you can only control what you can control. And that in this case is, is whether or not you react to the circumstances that you've been handed. And so that was, that was really great to hear. Oh, that, thank you. Um, letting go. We got to learn to unlatch. I use that term a lot. You have to unlatch, um, you know, like a pit bull on a pork chop, you have to unlatch from certain thought processes. You have to unlatch from your, you know, being stuck in a future-oriented um, uh, mindset, uh, you know, excessively, or a past-oriented mindset excessively. You have to catch yourself being there and snap yourself into the present. And I have, I can share a couple of easy ways to do that. Um, one of the exercises that I, I've been telling everybody, because I'm being asked a lot, like, what can I be doing right now? Mm -hmm. And a lot of my advice is, you know, coming from a mindfulness standpoint, but a lot of it is just, you know, it comes from a therapeutic background as well. And, and some of it's just common sense. Um, but one of the ways to ground yourself in the present is, first of all, you have to be 
checking in with yourself regularly to notice how am I feeling? What thoughts am I thinking? What kind of emotions are present and sensations in my body? And you notice something is, you know, unpleasant, um, or, or pleasant, but let's say for the sake of argument with this exercise, it's unpleasant. Then asking yourself, well, how long have I been out of the present? Because that's useful information. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, you know, for the last two hours, I've been daydreaming. I've been totally escaping from this awful reality that I do not want to accept and I do not want to lean into. So I'm just going to make something up and lose myself in that. Um, and by the way, that scenario goes bad on you as well, because it, it, in a couple of ways. One, you recognize that you've just wasted a tremendous amount of time and you haven't been productive and that might cause you some kind of problems in your life, particularly if you're at work daydreaming. Um, But the other thing is that, you know, daydreams aren't real. They're usually some idealized version of, of the future or a replaying of some awesome thing that's happened in the past, but on steroids and they're not real. And eventually you realize that they're ultimately unsatisfying. They're never going to materialize again. They're just, they're a, they're a a fiction in your mind. And then that sadness and that longing for it to happen again or be real emerges. So we have to snap ourselves back to the present. And a really easy way to do that is to um, either connect with the breath to do an awareness of breath exercise, which is the most simple building block of all mindfulness practices. Um, you basically are going to choose a focal point, whether it's the breathing in your at your nostrils, the breathing in your chest, the breathing in your abdomen, and you're going to rest all of your attention on the sensations of the breath in that area. And when your mind wanders away, and it will, you just bring it back. If you can do that for two minutes, unguided, Don't use an app. Learn how to cultivate this skill on your own, just two minutes, and set a timer on your phone. That The benefits will be extraordinary. You are conditioning your mind even with those two minutes here and there. Um, Once you master two minutes, I say add another two minutes and try and build a practice up from there. Okay, so ground yourself in the breath. That's the first way. Now, is there is there anything that people do, is there anything that people need to do uh, in terms of managing kind of the environment? I mean, so I, I mean, I, I tend to think about myself and trying to implement the practice here at home. Um, the whole family works up to get wakes up together. I've got three kids, and you know, do I need to have silence? Do I need to find my own space? Uh, I mean, just in terms of practical considerations around setting up the right conditions, even if it's only two minutes, what does what does that look like? Well, two minutes really isn't a a, a big amount of time. I mean, I'm sure the average person could excuse themselves and go to the bathroom for two minutes, even (laughs) if they're, you know, in in a busy family life. So, I mean, we're not asking for like a big formal, like 45 minute sit each morning. That's a bit more challenging, but I think that we can pull off two minutes. Um, For those situations you find yourself in where you have to do something to ground yourself, but you either feel awkward or it's not quiet enough for you to focus on the breath, there's an exercise where you can ground yourself in the present by engaging your senses. And this, no one needs to know you're doing. You can do this with your eyes open in the middle of your chaotic kitchen and no one needs to know you're doing it. In fact, you can, you can engage your family with it. You know, your, your children, this is great for kids as an alternate, uh, as an alternative to a timeout. Um, you say, we're going to, we're going to have a mindful moment. So kids, um, find something to look at and and describe it to me in detail. So the first thing is to find something to look at, really look at with curiosity in your immediate environment. 
So maybe it's the light fixture over your kitchen table. And you, you just take it for granted. You never really pay attention to it. But maybe now you really look at it and you're really exploring it. And maybe you're noticing those Edison bulbs and, wow, those are kind of freaky things when I really look at them. How interesting <laughs> are those? I've never really noticed. Or, oh, wow, we need to dust. Or, oh, there's a small spider on my light fixture. <laughs> Isn't that web cool? You know, whatever. But you're really leaning in with curiosity and you're noticing it. Now, this is, this is a mindful exercise, but it's an informal. So it's not a meditation per se, because kind of your mind is having a little treat. It's, it has something to do. It's, it's analyzing to a certain extent, but you're doing it in the present moment deliberately. So you're trying to ground yourself in your senses. So find one thing to look at, find um, another thing to hear. So uh, suddenly open up your focus and pay attention to all the sounds in the immediate environment. And then, you know, tune into one of them. Maybe it's the sound of um, a mixer in the kitchen. Maybe it's a bird outside the window. Maybe it's cars passing by. Um, maybe it's a TV playing downstairs. Whatever it is, just seek out a sound and explore it with curiosity. And try instead of labeling the sound like bird outside, Describe its attributes like hmm, high pitched or piercing, or maybe the bird sounds agitated. Maybe it's a robin who's fighting with another robin. So agitation. So we're not saying bird. We're describing the, the attributes of the sound itself. Okay. Next, find something to smell. Maybe it's the cologne on your wrist that, that got put there in the morning, or maybe it's a nearby cup of cold coffee. It doesn't matter. Find something to smell. And you want to rest in the smell and, again, sort of describe its attributes. Then you want to find a taste. Okay, so maybe it's the residue of, of the last meal that you ate in your mouth and you can still kind of detect it. And if there's nothing there, taste somebody something nearby. <laughs> Don't taste somebody <laughs> nearby. Taste something nearby, <laughs> preferably something edible, and, and notice its qualities. <laughs> and, um, and then finally ground yourself with uh, the body. So you want to notice something to feel. And one of the easiest ways to ground yourself is to immediately feel what your feel feel what your feet feel like making contact with the carpet or the floor or what your feet feel like within your slippers or your shoes or your socks. You can take your hands and you can sort of massage your palms with your own fingers. Like just really feel your own hands feeling themselves. And incidentally, this little grounding exercise is used um, a lot in therapeutic sessions, particularly with folks who have experienced trauma or people who have high anxiety. A grounding exercise which drops them out of their thoughts that might be spiraling and into the body by engaging all of the senses is a way of thrusting yourself into the present moment and also in this sort of sensory world. So very easy to do. So either a breath awareness or, you know, and like I said, Gareth, you can be with your family going about their business and you can do this little exercise unbeknownst to everybody. I can already see how to turn this into a game. I mean, the kids love playing Simon Says. Um, I mean, this is kind of like, uh, not, not Simon Says, um, uh, I Spy. <laughs> Wrong game. Yeah. Uh, they like that one too, but uh, we... <laughs> We, uh, we, they love to play I spy, but this is like a sensory I spy, um, where you're just adding a bit more detail and, and getting to be a bit more mindful about, about how they're attending to information in that channel. So it's not just about looking at something and 
for picking something out of the environment. It's about attending to it and paying a little bit more attention to it and, and getting them to describe it in a little bit more detail. This is super cool. I, I love this idea. Yeah, it's, it's great. And the thing is, this is all your life going on around you. Like the birds are singing and the coffee's brewing and your children are yelling or laughing and running <laughs> around. And this is your life. And, and this as, these aspects of life are no less important than the other things that we deem important. They're all important. And even the, even the difficult stuff is important because it's happening and it's our life. And we're finite, like it or not, we're finite. So to discount certain experiences over others, I mean, we're, we're missing out on a lot. And so, so take what, it back. What will this, what will this feel like? What will what feel like being present? Yeah. <laughs> like the, the, <laughs> the exercise. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's funny, but I mean, I, I, I think I, I, I imagine there's plenty of people who, who, who are so caught up in their devices and so caught up in their work. And so, I mean, and, and shamefully, uh, I think I can admit the, that there's times that I'm one of those people. I, I happen to know what it feels like, but it's, but there's times where it feels like it's a distant memory to, you know, the feeling of being present in the moment, you know, it's, uh, it's okay. It's, well, it's let, let me shoot, let me shoot something fantastic out there. Then you, this is going to dazzle awesome. you awesome. intellectually. <laughs> so you actually have an ability. <laughs> I really, I hope I haven't oversold this. I don't think so, but we actually have an ability to change our perception of time. And right. um, so yeah, let yeah. me give you an example and then I'll explain how we do this. So um, I've been practicing now for only nine years and I consider myself a novice and, um, and, and I very much am. This is going to be a lifelong thing and I'm never going to arrive. I'm just practicing away and, and, uh, and living my life. But I noticed, I'd say like five years ago, maybe, maybe a little, little more that my weekends, my sense of time was changing. And where I really noticed it was when I would, uh, you know, go away for the weekend up to our little cottage on Lake Huron, um, two day, a two day weekend would feel like four or five days. And I was totally ready to come home afterwards. A week long holiday. So if I took a week off in the summer would feel like almost a month and when we traveled abroad, going away for three weeks, when I came home, I'd actually lost a sense of when I had left. I felt I'd been along, been away that long. So what's and, going and no on? No drugs with that? were involved. And no drugs <laughs> were involved. And um, and and I thought, okay, well, this is interesting. And I just I noticed this for myself, and I I didn't really question. I just thought it was a really interesting byproduct uh, of meditation. And I sensed it had to do with the meditation. But what's really interesting is, um, um, and, uh, and maybe Gareth, you've even come across this. There's um, a, a theory in, I believe, social psychology called the oddball effect. And what it basically results in is things that we notice that we believe are novel or interesting to us actually cause the brain to process that experience. Um, I'm not going to say slower, but in proper real time. Mm -hmm. Things that we see all the time that become just commonplace to us or that we discount as being interesting um, and we don't really even notice anymore because they're so common or mundane, um, those experiences, the brain has a tendency to run almost 
like a compressed algorithm, a compression algorithm. Mm -hmm. Like it says, oh, I know what's going on here. I don't really need to fully expend the same amount of energy processing this cognitively as I would if this were a new experience. Right. I'm just going to, you know, run a short code, a, a, you know, a shortcut here with this. And our experience though, in, in our life uh, consciously is that time has passed very, very quickly. Mm. So when we lean in and really notice things and uh, treat really anything as being novel and interesting, we slow time down. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that mindfulness cultivates is something called beginner's mind. Mm-hmm. And beginner's mind starts with breath awareness. And it's where we sit there and we're, you know, totally immersed in focusing on the breath coming through our nose and what that feels like. And we're asked repeatedly in the beginning, really lean in and notice like with curiosity, what is this breath thing? Well, oh, there's a bit of a whistle right now when I'm breathing. Oh, my, my breath isn't at a constant rate. It kind of speeds up sometimes and it's slower at other times. And wow, is my breath like cool when it goes into my nose? And is it slightly warmer when it comes out? Can I actually detect that? And what's interesting is when you lean in to explore something that you've just taken for granted, or you think you know everything there is to know about it, and you decide, I'm going to suspend that. I'm going to actually lean in and pretend that I've never experienced this or noticed this before. You're activating beginner's mind. And I think a combination of employing beginner's mind over the past several years, having pretty much a daily practice um, from the mindfulness or rather the Vipassana tradition that I practice, I think it just all resulted in a bunch of things that are, sorry to say this, but bigger than the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. You put it all into the hopper and a whole bunch of really interesting byproducts have been occurring in my life, all of them beneficial. So, you know, my weekends feel a week long and my holiday in the summer feels like a month. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I can react to things, but get my uh, body and my mind and my emotions back into a regulated sort of resting state very, very quickly. I learn to let go of things. So, and we're not talking about cultivating like a, a saintly type of existence here. I, I still get upset. Um, I, I react sometimes, but I know that I'm reacting and I know that I have a choice. And I know how to get myself back into a state that where I am seeing clearly again, where I am equanimous once more, where I'm just allowing whatever is to be there, whether I like it or don't like it or anything. It's just here it is. It's my life. And I'm accepting of that. So there's all kinds of really interesting things that happen as you become a practitioner over time. So, so one of the things that, um, and I guess maybe this is maybe kind of closing, getting close to the end of the conversation. Um, and, uh, and it's a bunch of newer research, uh, uh, that I've seen in the last bunch of years, um, talking a little bit about, you know, whether or not mindfulness is for everyone. Um, what I love about your approach for, let me just say this off the top, uh, is this, you've got this kind of very beautiful scaffolded approach where you can start with two minutes and just being a little bit of being aware of what's going on with your breath for two minutes or the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the sensorium exercise that you were talking about there, which is, which is super wonderful and, and, and low impact. Um, 
but my understanding, I've heard a little bit more that, that, and this is probably a really small subset of the population, but for people who have experienced trauma potentially and people or people who have other mental health issues that, that when they're practicing meditation, you know, that they should be, I mean, I don't know exactly sure what the advice is, but, but that they may be, they, they may have to be a little bit more careful about what the dosage is, I guess, uh, is maybe one way of putting it. Um, because I'm just imagining if there's somebody out there, you know, listening right now who, who has trauma, uh, or who, who's undergoing, um, you know, has other kind of psychological challenges, um, you know, that while this is, this technique is safe and, and enjoyable and fun for, for the vast majority of people, um, that maybe some people out there may, may experience, have different experiences, right? Absolutely. And that's really important that you said that, um, you know, and the earlier talking about, well, you know, just lean in, learn how to lean in. Well, first of all, we have to learn to lean in and that's a process. Right. Um, and we have to cultivate that ability over time. And I'm, I'm going to stress that again, we're not just going to jump into the deep end of the pool here. Um, and particularly for folks who are struggling uh, with their mental health, um, and or have trauma. It's interesting in my courses, in my MBSR courses, um, we do do an intake and there's a questionnaire where we try and account for certain situations that an indiv- individual may have gone through or be dealing with right now that might make them, um, not them unfit to sit um, the course, but it might prove too challenging for them at this time. And so, you know, one of the things would be an active addiction that's not under control. All right. Because we need to be fully present. So, you know, someone in the throes of an addiction that is not being managed, who doesn't have supports in place, um, it isn't being treated by a medical professional and, or in some kind of a program, um, they, they probably would not be able to get a lot out of the course. It would be really difficult for them. Um, people with fresh grief, All right. So if you've lost someone really significant in your life recently, and by recently, we mean anywhere from six to 12 months, um, it can, it can be very overpowering. I mean, because grief itself is a very important emotion and it's something that has to be processed. And we do that in, in little bits, you know, day after day. And, um, and it has to unfold in a certain way. So it could be very difficult to sit um, a meditation course or to sit with a, a lengthy practice. With that, as for mental health, um, they say anyone who is in the throes of a, a major depressive episode would find it extremely difficult to sit meditation for too long a time. So now let me clarify, we're not talking about people who don't have a history of depression. So mindfulness has proven highly effective um, for folks who are struggling with depression, but who are not in the midst or in the throes of a major depressive episode at the time that they undertake the mindfulness training. The reason being is that the rumination is so overpowering that where um, an individual not struggling with a major depression can be sitting in a class and their brain is you know, they're trying to focus on their breath and their brain's wandering away to their to-do list. And, oh, I got to haul it back. Oh, their brain's thinking about what they're going to eat after the class. Oh, they haul it back. And they may haul their focus back many, many times during the course of this sit, however long that sit is. But a person suffering from a major depression, the rumination is just overpowering. 
their ability to sit. Like they just can't get out of the rumination. And I've, I have had folks in some of my classes who either weren't aware of the extent of their depression at the time when they enrolled and they struggled horribly. They really, really struggled. It was very, very difficult for them. And then you don't want to add to that a sense of, well, here's one more thing that I failed at, you know, because they're already very low. They don't need another thing on their plate that says, well, I wasn't able to, to do that. So there are some things. Now, trauma, that's, that's an interesting one. There are adaptations of mindfulness programs, MBSR is one of them, that are specifically designed for folks who have experienced trauma or who have post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay, that's great to know. And yeah, and in fact, um, I am exploring um, some of the protocols to be able to deliver that in the future at my center because there's a huge need for it. And um, and so I am exploring that. I have not run a course like that yet myself, but there are protocols. And one of them, and, and Gareth, you're probably with your background familiar with this, but there's a technique called titration in therapy. And when you are trying to deal with something that is, you know, very, very difficult emotionally, you tiptoe into the waters and you sit with the feelings being produced by the event when you're bringing it to mind. But when it threatens to completely overwhelm, you have permission with your therapist that you're working with in that moment to step out of it, to ground yourself in your senses, to go to the breath, um, and, and when you're ready, to dip back in again. And the idea being that over time, you will be able to sit with the difficult for longer and longer periods of time until the emotional charge that is built up around that event or around that experience actually dissipates and eventually almost completely dissolves over time. And, um, and so that element is definitely present in a trauma informed mindfulness based stress reduction program. So we're very aware that people could become very activated in certain moments. And we, change certain aspects of the course so that it supports someone who is dealing with those types of, of issues. Um, and it could be as simple as they don't meditate with their eyes closed. They leave their eyes open or they close them for as long as is comfortable. And then they open them whenever they need to. Um, maybe they don't sit with their back to the door. Maybe they have permission to get up and quietly leave the room and go get a glass of water um, or, you know, walk the halls and, or get some fresh air and then come back when they're ready. Um, so there's, there's a bunch of different protocols in place and it's something that I'm very interested in exploring in the future. That was an excellent explanation. I, I, you know, and, and a lot of that information was super new for me as well. So, uh, I just, I was aware of the literature that's, um, out there for people who, who may have who may struggle with a, a meditative practice, but to see that there's a lot of different on ramps and off ramps for people in various conditions is, is fantastic. So that was, that was excellent. Yeah. I mean, I did see at my trips to the Vipassana center. Um, I mean, and they do, they do an intake. It's a 10 day silent retreat, as you know, mm -hmm. uh, with a day tacked on to either end. And they do a pretty extensive intake um, before you're admitted, before you're allowed to go and sit the retreat. And they say, you can't have an active addiction. Please do not use this as rehab. I have seen people who are using Vipassana retreats as rehab. I've seen it firsthand. Um, people who are clearly suffering from mental illness, um, 
or, you know, major depression and, um, and, you know, their reactions uh, can be quite extreme in that setting. Now, interestingly enough, they're the extreme minority, the overwhelming uh, majority of people that I've seen at the, the number of retreats that I've been to. Um, everyone's struggling. Everybody's struggling. Um, but um, they're resilient. Their inner resilience uh, sees them through to the end. It's not supposed to be pleasant. Um, we're sitting with ourselves. We're sitting with difficulty. We're sitting with everything. And that's not easy. Uh, but I have seen a very small number of people who clearly should not have been admitted. And I don't think that's the fault of the center itself, but just in, you know, the self-reporting to get in. So maybe on a final note, swinging into that mention of resilience and, and I mean, cause one of the things that, um, you know, I've done a bit of work on, uh, on like research work on, on resilience and it's just, it's such a powerful concept, a powerful notion, especially now as we're all being forced into circumstances uh, that we're not used to. I mean, all those routines have been completely blown up for us and we're learning to deal with these kind of strategic shocks, the strategic shock in our life that we, you know, we, we may not have been equipped to deal with before. Um, and so, you know, I think one of the powerful lessons from, from meditation, and I'll let you, you know, explain this for, for the audience is that equanimity of mind as being a central feature of, of resilience. And so I wonder if you could just elaborate on that a little bit, Angela. On equanimity or on resilience? On resilience, yeah. Resilience stems from, I think, ultimately an ability to know that we can get through whatever we're facing. I mean, I think, I think there's a large component of appraisal that is built into the notion of resiliency because when we turn away from difficulty, I think it's ultimately because we've appraised a situation hastily or not hastily and said, I can't deal with this or I don't want to deal with this because I don't think I can. And resiliency, I think through mindfulness is, and again, this is something that we cultivate systematically over time. It's not something that we just show up and we have, you know, nobody nails it. Mindfulness and meditation is called a practice, not a nailed it. It's an ongoing thing. And so, um, resilience, resiliency shows up when you can sit with things that are wonderful, things that you deem awful, and you recognize that you have the capacity to survive it. And not only that, but that you have an ability to alter how you want to respond to any given situation. And you do that first by pausing, by breathing, and by bringing yourself into the moment and, and seeing things more clearly. And maybe in the moment you can't see clearly, but all you can do is calm down, turn to the breath, get your emotions under control. And maybe the best you can do is that you don't add to the difficulty or the conflict. You don't worsen it through a reaction. You just do nothing. You take care of yourself and you calm down. And then you see clearly later. Um, but resiliency has a lot to do with your ability to prove to yourself that you can handle a lot more than you think you can. And I'll go back to what I said earlier, um, which is, we can handle our lives in the present moment. We can handle whatever hits us in the present. We may think we can't. We may not like at all what is happening. We may be terrified by what's in front of us. But um, 
the truth is emotions don't kill us. They don't. It's the appraisal of what's going on in our mind about certain things that determine whether or not a situation is going to be wonderful or awful. And so, I mean, it's, it's this appraisal mechanism when it comes right down to it, you know, so often, I mean, when we deem, I don't like this, your body follows suit. When you say, I really like this, well, your body follows suit. Well, what if we were to cease those types of judgments for every single thing in our life? What if we were just to be and not feel the need to judge literally everything and decide whether I like this, I don't like this, this is, this is okay, this isn't okay? What if we were to just be and to accept the, the full range of experiences? And we, and we learn to do that over time by cultivating a present moment awareness, by conditioning the mind to be able to rest in the present more and more often through a formal practice. What then? And I guess I won't give away the end of the story because the beauty of, of meditation is discovering the power and just the, the beauty all on your own, waking up. I mean, you can, you know, we've spent the last hour chatting about what mindfulness is and what mindfulness isn't and what it can do. And that's all really interesting. But the power of, of, of mindfulness is experiencing it directly for yourself and making up your own mind. And then you don't need anybody to convince you of its value because you'll just know. Yeah. Well, I, I can't think of a better way to, uh, to wrap up. Um, I think, you know, exactly as you said, there's, we are resilient creatures. We're all going to experience this a little bit differently, but that's, uh, that's for us to, uh, to discover. That's our journey to take. That's so right. Get out you, of your uh, heads and into your body. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, so thank you, well, thank you. so much. Um, there's, uh, uh, there's, there's so many of these um, little, little tidbits that I love that you can, you can take away um, to, to think about and incorporate into what we do um, in a current situation and in the future um, as we go through this journey ourselves. Well, and I would like to mention that, um, so while my center is closed, um, we, we've shut our doors for the time being, and I'm not offering classes. One of the ways that I decided to make sense of all of this and to keep my mind busy was to um, just throw myself into community outreach. And so what I came upon was this idea of offering a morning, a daily morning broadcast at 10 a.m. called Good Morning Mindfulness. And uh, it's an opportunity to practice various types of mindful meditations. It's got some good news. It's got some practical tips and resources, all stemming from an evidence-based tradition. It's a live um, session. So uh, you can pick up the link on the Forest City Mindfulness Facebook page and also on the schedule page of the Forest City Mindfulness website if you're not uh, a person who's on Facebook. And we can and provide that join link to the, the audience as well. Yeah, yeah, that would be sure. great. That is awesome. It's free. It's free. And I'm, I'm writing the show uh, every evening to deliver every morning. And um, it's, it feels good for me. And, it, and it's giving people concrete coping tools from a mindfulness standpoint to, to help. You know, just put in your toolbox is one more thing that can help you exactly. get through this. Exactly. Uh, and the, at, at a time like this, the more tools we have, the better. Big time. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Yeah, thank you awesome. very much, Angela. Yeah, that was that was amazing. Really, really good. It was fun. So that was uh, 
that was a lot. Um, there's a lot to take in there. And I'm thinking about um, key takeaways. Let, let me run through what, what I think some of these are. <clears throat> Gareth, you can let me know if your list was similar. Sure. So first thing I heard was um, uh, to uh, so let your guard down uh, and accept where you're at. Um, I think that's that's kind of important to just be not in denial, but in, um, aware. Yeah, there's something to be said um, for just, you know, getting back to the present moment as a, as a starting point for all of this. I mean, it's, it's kind of where you want to end up staying uh, if you, if you follow Angela's advice, but it's uh, it also makes sense as a place to start. Exactly. Uh, and, and the interesting thing, or the thing that maybe exacerbates the problem is that the current situation is making us spend a lot of time thinking about the future, right? Cause that's where the unknowns are right now. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about the future. Um, and we know that is a source of, uh, of anxiety, chiefly because, as Angelo mentioned, that may create wanting, wanting of things to be different. Um, and that creates suffering and that creates uh, a bunch of anxiety. Um, one of my favorite lines that she mentioned is, you can, you can, I think I'm going to make a t-shirt out of this one. <laughs> you can handle today, don't pre-live the future. And I love this idea because I'm so guilty of it where I will, you know, think about all of these future scenarios uh, and ultimately, I'll pre-live all of them, even though I'm ultimately going to only experience one. Yeah, and, and and what's interesting about this line, don't pre-live the future. Um, you know, when you think about it, I mean, in, in, in my in my day job, you know, my job is to think about the future. You know, I you know often have to do risk management type work. And thinking about the future is perfectly fine if you're doing it in a way that's not going to lead to suffering. The pre-living of the future, the the working through those scenarios, but then living those scenarios as though you're in them, and then dealing with all the suffering when you don't even know if those events are going to turn out to be true, is you know is is self-destructive. There's this awesome line in uh, in Frank Herbert's book uh, Dune. I don't know. I don't know if you've read Dune. I mean, you're a sci-fi, uh, you're a sci-fi junkie. So you know, fear is the mind killer. Right. Yes. And, and it, that line always stuck with me because, you know, whenever whenever I think about anxiety, having had, have, had my own experiences with anxiety in the past, you know, you know, you know that the, the that that anxiety can be paralytic. It can kind of shut you down. Yes. And if you're living through your future before the events have even happened, you're paralyzing yourself about something that may not even happen in the first place. So so there's a there's, the planning is good. You know, financial planning is good. Doing some planning for the future is just a sensible thing to do pre-living it isn't. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the, the quick start here, um, do a check-in. Um, how long have you been out of the present in the future, in the past or daydreaming? I liked, I like that. That's a really simple one, uh, to, uh, to go through and just, you know, with yourself, think about, you know, really how much time have I spent in the present? Yeah, and if you're and if you're looking for a clue, if you can't figure out the answer to that question, I mean, just pull out your smartphone and look at the uh, look at the uh, the new feature on your iPhone or whatever else about how many hours you spent surfing the internet. Well, and even and even better, um, I, I like where you're going with that in your search history. Oh, right. right, yeah, exactly. What what have you been looking at? Yeah. Um, and no, you're, you're, you're very right. Um, and then the exercise that, that, uh, that Angela mentioned where you, you know, you connect your, with your breath for a couple minutes, uh, look at something, listen to something, smell, taste, um, how, how does something feel? I think it's a really cool intro to, uh, to starting 
I will also post links to her site where she has uh, an intro video. Um, and I'm sure, you know, these are, uh, these are things that you folks can find as well if they, if they want to get into this a little bit more seriously. Yeah. And, and just one comment on, on Angela's recommendation, which I, I got to say, I really loved, um, was the idea, I mean, this, uh, the suggestion of connecting with your breath. I mean, there's like, there's all sorts of meditation apps out there, breathe, and there's a bunch of others. Um, and they're perfectly fine for, for, for teaching you mindfulness and, and kind of, uh, as a, as a kind of mindfulness prosthetic, as it were. But there's something to be said, and it just, in, you know, I'm not a Puritan about about a lot of things, but but when it comes to mindfulness, I mean, if the goal really is to be present in the moment and to settle into your senses, right? You know, mm-hmm. bringing an app or bringing other things into the mix is is kind of just, you know, yes, it'll it'll sharpen your mind, it'll help you concentrate, it, it's it's going to do something, and, it'll, and there, will be, there will be positive benefits. So this is not a criticism of any of the apps out there. If you're using one, continue using it. But there's something to be said to be able to be present and aware in the moment with just the things that are going on in your body, something as simple as your breath. Uh, and so if you're using one of, uh, one of these meditation apps, great, continue using it. But just try, as Angela suggested, uh, to, to engage in, in a simple breathing meditation like this kind of Anapana-style medi- style meditation where you just literally focus on the sensation of your breath coming in into your body and just observing it coming in and out. Um, it, it's fascinating. You're very right. And I, I sort of, you know, I think of it akin to, you know, the, the novice and, and the intermediate, right? Um, uh, I, I'm not, I don't think it, at an intermediate level yet. So the guided meditations really, really do help. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, now that I've heard her say this, I am looking forward to trying the other one and seeing what that feels like. Yeah, 100 uh, One thing that, uh, that you mentioned that I, I, I'd like to restate are, are these... Um, I don't know if you want to call them warnings or what do we what do we want to call them, but uh, the idea that you know being with yourself and with your mind is a good and healthy exercise, um, but not necessarily for everyone. So, so I want to restate two things she mentioned: not for you if you're uh, experienced recent grief, you know, loss of a loved one, um, or those in in the midst of some depressive episode or with some severe trauma. Um, you know the the mind uh, when uh, when left uh, to its own devices can go to some dark places, um, and if you know some of these things have have happened, this may uh, um, you know exacerbate those issues. Anything you wanted to add? There? No, no, I think that's I think that's good. Okay. Thank you all very much for joining us today uh, for this lengthy episode. I'm glad you made it all the way to the end. As always, we look forward to your comments and your feedback. You can find us at themamclub.com and there's a contact us form there. Um, Thank you all very much. Big manly hugs. Until next time.